Elite Expert Insider, the podcast that educates, inspires, and motivates you to take your business and life to the next level. We would like to thank Audible for supporting Elite Expert Insider. Please go to the link bit.ly forward slash Elite Audible. That's bit.ly forward slash Elite Audible. And get a free 30-day trial to show your support. Thank you, Audible. Now to Elite Expert Insider for conversations with industry leaders. Hi, it's Melanie Johnson here with Jen Foster for another episode of Elite Inside Expert. And we have a special guest today, Beverly Kyer. She's going to talk about what it's like to have compassion fatigue. She's going to tell us exactly what it is and what you should look for and how to overcome it. She's written a couple books on the subject. And it's really a hot topic right now with our whole population getting older. So we can't wait to talk to her. So, Beverly, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Well, tell us, for those of us who don't know, what exactly is compassion fatigue? Compassion fatigue is a syndrome that very much mirrors post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, it's a condition that impacts people who are directly impacted by a traumatic event or life experience that is overwhelmingly stressful and more stress than typical stress, you know, like being on the line of DMV or in traffic. But this stress has such a chemical impact. The people who have compassion fatigue are the ones who are providing service directly as human service providers, rescue workers, emergency workers, health workers, and family caregivers who are working intensely with people who are struggling, people who are suffering, people who have a lot of demands to take care of their physical, mental, and emotional needs. So the, the impact on the caregiver and the service provider is a secondary or vicarious impact in the, the stress of the work. No matter how much you love and care for people, it is very, very taxing emotionally, and it is very, very taxing on the human body. So that's essentially what it is. Some say... Uh, some of the original authors of this, this subject said it is the cost of caring. And it happens really because oftentimes, or maybe most times as I'm learning more and more, the person who's providing that kind of care and service uh, do not consider the impact on themselves and they do a fair or poor or no job at all in terms of doing self-care concurrent with the, what they're giving out to others. They just don't take care of themselves sufficiently, and so it takes a toll. And what's important to understand is this not tired in the way that we think of for just having you know, a heavy day work and coming home taking care of the family, but it's a chemical reaction that happens with this kind of traumatic stress. Why I say it's traumatic because it is more extreme than everyday stresses that the normal general population faces. So that's essentially what it is. But it gets to interfere in every domain of a person's life, that stress. They just push and push and push, drain. They don't think to recharge, to replenish, to restore, to get adequate rest, to recover from the things they have seen and heard. We think about rescue workers or the police to go in after a disaster or a tragedy or fire people or nurses that are helping uh, to try to save lives and that can be very taxing, and then very often the lives may be lost in the cause 
but the effect on them has a chemical reaction. So it, it wears on their capacity to sleep, to rest, to recover. It can rob joy. It interferes with family life. As I'm talking to people, sometimes I'm asking, how many times do you get a sort of a flashback or a traumatic imagery, remembrance of a very unfortunate or a, a distressful situation when you're at a birthday party or a cookout or a wedding? It just kind of those kinds of things invade because we feel so deeply about struggling people, suffering people, victimized people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what it is in a nutshell. There's so much more to say about it because it mm -hmm. has major, major symptoms that impact people cognitively, emotionally, uh, behaviorally, interpersonally, uh, spiritually, and physically. It really has major physical uh, impacts that could be highly detrimental. It could be near fatal and it could be fatal. If people persist yeah. in not doing intentional and consistent self-care. Well, I think uh, a lot of those people have such big hearts and they're just giving, 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 and they forget to give to themselves. And so yes. it's great that you've um, written the, the book. What was the title of your book again? Um, so the title of my book is Surviving Compassion Fatigue. It's Help for Those Who Help Others. And it, I also uh, subtitled it uh, The Story, The Mission, and the Gift. Yeah, that's wonderful. Because I think a lot of the stuff you have in there just really will help those people that already have such big hearts to look and turn to themselves and give themselves that time and and help themselves to, you know, to give themselves the self-care, right? <laughs> the care that you're, you're giving others. They say right. that, I like um, to call it give yourself self-compassion, you know, practice some of that. Yeah. And the population is getting so much older. I've heard figures on... Um, people who take care of Alzheimer's patients or dementia patients, especially if they're trying to do it at home, that a lot of times the caregivers are dying before the patient is dying. That is exactly what the statistics are. If you, you think of the average man or woman, they have work, they have a home, and they're taking care of their elderly parents, or even a, a, a sibling, other relative that's sick, they're taking care of two households. They're managing the medical care, the appointments, uh, the physical hygiene, the feeding of another person and trying to juggle their lives. And this is extremely, if you just think when you come home, those of us who work uh, a normal eight hour job and you come home, well, you do some family stuff, you're tired and fatigued and you're looking forward to rest. But to come away from your work and start all over again to manage someone else's life. Um, you can just imagine and the loss of sleep, the physical distress. I was just recently, uh, there's somebody very near and dear to me who had to leave her home and, hus and husband, uh, not permanently, uh, in California and move all the way to the East Coast to take care of her. Both of her parents have um, fallen on really, really significant illnesses in her one of her parents at this point cannot move, needs to be turned over in bed, and he's very, very weighty. And he was a, a young mother um, trying to manage all of that, and he'll still be stay connected to her home here. This has been going on for her um, a year, and she's very, very stressed, very, very stressed. Her husband is uh, picking up now at this point and trying to pack down and work virtual from his job and move over there to help her manage all of that. 
And so it's, but it's, it's so prevalent, like you said, Melanie. The numbers are absolutely phenomenal. People live longer. I'm just growing. And by going to an audience to speak of, let's just say, 30 people, um, it's probably 20 of them taking care of family members. That's in a lot. addition to managing them. That's a lot. And that number's not going to get back. No, because the population is uh, growing older and older. The largest group of baby boomers is um, getting older and older. We're right in the heat of it right now. Mm -hmm. Tell us, how did you get? I, how did you get into this field? I got into fields because I I was a social worker. I still am a social worker, and I um, came out of social work and went to work with children with cancer, leukemia, and helped those parents through that ordeal and. Um, from data recovery, uh, data diagnosis, excuse me, through a horrific treatment protocol, and then many of them did not make it, so I was helping the parents through that awful loss. And then uh, some years later, I went to work with veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder, returning from Vietnam, and that was uh, a very complex situation of people who were so devastated, traumatized by the war. Now, this is post-traumatic stress disorder. This is direct trauma. Uh, they were struggling with the difficulty of trying to reintegrate, and that wasn't working to their homes, to their families, to the communities, to something that looks like a normal life. Uh, depression, suicides galore, um, alcoholism, to try to cope, um, domestic violence. And I wound up working also because the organization was Operation Outreach. We needed to also incorporate intense work with the families. Uh, marriages, partners, and this, the children of the veterans to help them cope. It was a new learning for us, but I was so invested in both of those populations, and I really just dug deep. I saw the need, and I, I think we could get so consumed. I knew I did with caring, and I felt strong. I felt so, so strongly purposed and so strongly mission to help, which was such a clear... Um, uh, need and didn't even realize it was overwhelming to me. I just exerted energy and uh, at some points there were some changes in me that I, I didn't necessarily notice in terms of my mood and my emotions and my behavior and uh, I, you know, I can cry over spilled milk and it's clumsy and having accidents and nervous kinds of reactions, hyper vigilant and hyper uh, uh, alert about, you know, dangers and risks. We lost quite a few people in both of those jobs. And it took a toll on me, but I, I persisted because we didn't understand anything about this thing called compassion fatigue, which is also, now the clinical terms for it, incidentally, are uh, secondary and vicarious trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, that's secondary is obviously when we feel very, very deeply touched when we hear a tragedy or disaster. And it really stays with us. I mean, we want to know more and more about it. We can't get away from those thoughts and those images. And the vicarious uh, term for it really talks to how when we work in it, the whole atmosphere is ripe with stress and distress. And you absorb that, um, that constant exposure to the concern, the fear, the worry, to try to rescue, to try to prevent things from happening, trying to help heal people heal from what's happening, and that's a very slow and painful process. So the exposure and the absorption, um, it just 
alters your life, the way you see life, the way you operate life. And so that's the vicarious part. But anyway, I did that work, and then I, and some years later, I moved into child welfare, and I think that's when it really kept for me. Um, as much as I feel terrible grief, terrible distress about any adult that's victimized, traumatized, uh, loses their life in any way, uh, when it came to the children, that took me to a, a different place, a different level of feeling responsible for our children. You know, if you compare the way you felt when you saw a shooting in the theater, it was horrifying when you saw the shooting in Sandy Hook. It just, because these are our children, just the innocence, the vulnerability. So working in that capacity, trying to help children who had been any, the range from neglect to physical and sexual abuse, and emotional abuse, to abandonment, to homelessness, um, the passion that I feel every worker feels is uh, a top level. It's just absolutely top shelf. The intentionality to do something to help to rescue, to make a difference, uh, is way at top shelf. It's just an overdrive. It's so easy to get consumed and overwhelmed. We talk about, we do things and try to keep some balance, keep some perspective, to be objective. And that's true. We could do that. We we do that to the extent that we remain professional in how we handle things. Nevertheless, that looking at that and injured, a damaged, a murdered child, um, it's in your heart. It's in your mind. It goes everywhere with you. And so, back that up. I did that for nine years, and because I never counted the cost, I never really looked and understood the impact on me. As a matter of fact. When there were some impacts, as we talk about now in retrospect a lot, um, I could always minimize it or rationalize it or blow it off just to keep it. I even thought if I got the cold, I felt like that's a luxury. I got to get back to the kids. I got to get back to the kids. Mm -hmm. My body gave out. It, it, it gave out. I suffered one and then the second episode of heart failure. The second one happened because I did not learn from the first one. I was anxious to recover and get back to helping those children, particularly ones who were still on my caseload. Um, and I went down the second time. And that one was uh, in their bottom out. I um, went into intensive rehab for three months, so I couldn't get back uh, and get to the children. I didn't even get to say goodbye to the children because I had that second episode on the highway on the way to work one morning. Mm -hmm. So... Um, the good news about that, uh, Melanie and Jen, is that when it knocked me completely into a state of helplessness, I could barely walk. I slept in a recliner uh, day and night um, when I wasn't in rehab. I could barely walk to the restroom, in my, which is in the suite of my bedroom. Mm -hmm. And that state of helplessness, all I could do was get on a computer, not to check with work, but to try to explore and research what in the world happened to me. How did this happen? Because to me, first of all, I felt that I believe, I have a strong belief system that the work given to me, that mission, that's God's work, so I was supposed to be okay. The thing, the thing I missed out in that, uh, that, my, that, that belief system that I was supposed to rest, that's where I failed. I was supposed to stop. I was supposed to take breaks. I was supposed to give myself time to recover between the struggles and between the tragedies. And I didn't know to do that. So when I researched it, I learned 
an enormous amount of significant, serious, near fatal and fatal illnesses that are directly related to unmanaged stress. And that there was my learning. And then the fact, the fact that I lived through two episodes and I was by myself both times. I said, well, I got a purpose for being here. You yeah. know what it was going to be, but it wasn't going to be direct care. So I took a lot of stock of a lot of things, and I thought about also my colleagues over the years. I had seen changes in them. We came out of school with energy and desire and passion to do good, to help, to save, to really serve in a powerful way. And I watched some of that energy get drained and zapped. I watched some of the enthusiasm, the, the motivation, the inspiration get somewhat compromised. And yet people still push and try to just give up. By, but, I, you know, in retrospect, I, I, I could see where I saw shifts. I saw the people who were close to me, and I realized that it challenged their family life. Like there was very little energy left when you leave a situation like that and you get home. The people who you love are waiting for you to get there to be available for them. And I realized for my friends as well as myself, that was a struggle because it was not much left there. Nevertheless, we persisted. But it, 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 it all paid a cost. So it came to me that my mission would be to help the helper. I could help the children. I could help the adults who are struggling and in pain and suffering. Not only uh, physical caregiver, uh, kidding, Melanie, we have so much mental illness in this country. Mm -hmm. Care for people like that is overwhelming. It is so extremely taxing and demanding on a person. So I wanted to help all of the people who help in the, the, all of the fields. There's, there's a whole range of the medical and mental health and service providers and legal services, juvenile uh, justice people, uh, people in the probation departments, um, all of the counselors and mediators and court personnel and emergency response teams. I sit down and do a lot of work with a number of them. No, but that in my mission. That became my mission. So tell us, what are some of the things that someone should look for that is a caregiver um, to know that they are uh, starting to have these signs? And what should they do, uh, even for someone who's going to start to take care of someone, what should they do to make sure they don't um, get this? Well, let me start with your last question. What you're going to start to take care of someone is to understand the risks right up front. And people often feel because you love people and you have a responsibility to people, like the elderly people who are taking care of their grandchildren and grandchildren because their parents may have lost their lives or they're gone for one reason or another, is to come up with a plan and incorporate as much help as you can uh, from the start. Um, when I say a plan, what are you going to realistically be able to do? What are the needs? in the other household, are they coming home to you, they're going to be in your house, and how is that going to work out, they're going to be, who's going to share responsibility, if you're going to go to their house, that's another level of care, and that may, that definitely means try as best you can to include many other family members, their friends, members from the church, members from the community, to kind of rotate some of the responsibilities, as opposed to people mistakenly, taking them all. Somebody else should be doing the shopping. Some people should alternate getting into their appointments. Some people should alternate going to the pharmacy to get medications or doing the bathing and personal care and the feedings. But to make a plan and to share the responsibility 
that's probably the hardest is, thing. Don't you think that that's kind of is. the hardest thing for people to do is to, to, re to share the responsibility? Because I think a lot of times people feel like, oh, well, I can do it all. I can do it all. Or they think, well, I want to give. I don't need to involve other people. But the truth is, is they need to have that compassion for themselves, like you said, and and involve other people and share that responsibility. Mm -hmm. Love in that vein could be pretty deceptive. Most all of us feel that we could do it. Mm -hmm. We should do it. And that's where we uh, run. If you don't have the expectancy. If you understand that compassion fatigue is a predictable outcome of caregiving and service provision, then you're on a different plane. But most people don't see that until they're already in it and they're really, really struggling. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the other piece of that, too, is that, as you said, Jen, that's really, really difficult, that some, in many families, and this goes across all cultures, usually one person is identified as the one who should be doing it all. And I notice that there's a resistance on other family members who really, really share that thing. But I think also that the caregiver, the identified caregiver, bears some responsibility, such as myself, for setting a precedent that we can do it by ourselves and then people don't engage later. Later, What I'm asking people to do is to make a plan and to try to uh, garner a group of supporters to share from the very, very, very beginning before you mm -hmm. get into it. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, so, you're, you, you have another book called A Blueprint for Self-Care and I think that little guide really does help the, the caregiver in taking that compassion for themselves. So. It, People should read yeah, that. I was, very deliberate. I was very deliberate in that book to be very, very, very basic, very, very simplistic things that just people forget about and people think about costs when they look about getting help. But these were just some basic things that had nothing to do with costs. Mm -hmm. To take time, strategies, little methods to um, create some inner peace, some inner regulation to your physicality while you're doing the work. Yeah. Beverly, do you think people get desensitized after a while for their compassion? Yeah, they do. They get numb to it. They ignore it, dismiss it, and they don't realize it. I can honestly say, you know, with my background, it's surprising to me. I we, and I think all um, healthcare providers in our training we're very sensitized to other people's struggle, and it is something. Uh, in us that makes many of us, if not most of us, not recognize, be sensitive to our own. Dr. Anna Baranowski, she was my, my trainer. I went to Canada to study. She's a traumatology institute to be certified in compassion fatigue. And she said that we in the helping fields primarily have something that's called a disease of adaptation. In other words, when it comes to us, what little distresses, signals, or ties, or little irritations in our bodies we could, you know, make excuses for, ignore, rationalize, minimize, and just keep on moving, keep client-focused, keep mm -hmm. suffering our primary focus, but not ourselves. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Do you have your books there with you? Yes, I do. I have my books here with me. Let me see yeah, if I can show them. So this is the, believe it or not, this wind up being the first book, the, the little blueprint that you were talking about. And let me know if I'm holding it right. Yep, this we, is a blueprint for care. Jen, yeah. you worked on this. 
Absolutely. <laughs> Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is, this is a really, really basic night carry around uh, selfies, a way for creating time and space and a peaceful healing sanctuary for those in the helping professions and for caregivers. So this is the actually the first book, which was an extraction from my main book, mm -hmm. The Surviving Passion Fatigue Book. And I am so... I love this cover. <laughs> I love this cover. It mm -hmm. speaks to the strength of people who are doing that kind of care for others. Um, I love that. It could be somewhat here yeah, by yourself, but awesome. Yeah, yeah. It it's all right and it strengthens people at the same time. Yeah, but I love I love the title. The title means a lot to me mm -hmm. because I wanted to give to people who really walk into a problem where others may walk away, others don't notice, others are not aware of, but uh, people in these fields, people who go into their homes and loved ones, are very, very precious people, very, very wonderful, special people, so that's why I made the title such as that. And I love what you're saying, kind of to summary that you know, you, if you know you're going to be doing this, or you already are taking care of somebody, whether they've had a trauma or we've had so much tragedy in our our country lately that people are having to go through a lot of trauma, to make sure that you make a plan. Don't feel like you have to be in control of the whole situation and do everything to um, delegate to other people and to take that time for yourself is the other point you really made. Whether it's just uh, going for a walk or going for a massage or just doing something that's for you, just even sitting outside and recharging your batteries. So I think those two things of making that plan and make sure you carve out that time for yourself and to um, spread the jobs out to everyone else. I think that's a, a great way for great advice for someone to start if they have to, if they're in that situation or about to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Beverly. We really appreciate you coming today, and uh, we will have your books up on our website, and Jen will put a link up there so they can get them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know as so many people are involved in doing this, I think it's so timely, and we really appreciate you coming by today. We want to remind everyone to subscribe to our podcast. Um, please leave us a review. We would love to hear from you and, uh, and pass it on to other people to share it with them. So we'd love to have you subscribe and give us a review and uh, give us some love, share some stars and hearts with us. See you next time. Um, this is signing off for Melanie Johnson, and there's Jen Foster. Hi. Thanks, Beverly. For more information about us, go to EliteOnlinePublishing.com. To get your free book, The Accomplishment and Success Story Starter, simply text your name and email to 832-572-5285. That's 832-572-5285. We'd also like to thank Audible for supporting Elite Expert Insider. To get your free 30-day trial, please go to BIT dot ly forward slash elite audible that's bit dot ly forward slash elite audible and get your free 30-day trial to show your support thank you audible